How many of you recognize this board game? Monopoly. One of the most popular games in our culture and has been for years. Okay, a lot of you have played the game but don't know the history behind the game. So this actually comes from the first paragraph in the Wikipedia account of Monopoly. Monopoly is a board game that originated in the United States in 1903 as a way to demonstrate the evils of land ownership. The current version was published by Parker Brothers in 1935, subtitled The Fast Dealing Property Trading Game. The game is named after the economic concept of monopoly, the domination of a market by a single entity. It's now produced by the United States Game and Toy Company Hasbro. Players move around the game board, buying or trading properties, developing their properties with houses and hotels, and collecting rent from their opponents with the goal being to drive them all into bankruptcy, leaving one monopolist in control of the entire economy. So isn't it interesting that in 1903, a woman named Elizabeth McGee designed a game to teach the evil of acquiring more at the expense of others. And with a few decades, it had completely reversed and sends a totally different message. Because in our culture, it is hard to market a game where the goal is for me to get less so that you can have more. What game is out there where the goal is to have less except golf, which is why God loves that game. But every other game that we play, the goal is for me to get more and not just for me to get more, but for me to get more by taking from you. And the reason we like our games that way is because we tend to live our lives that way. Until Jesus comes along. And Jesus has a new way to keep score. And Jesus asked, is it really a win if your gain means someone else has to lose? And the main way we keep score is money. And so Jesus has a lot to say about money. Pastor Rick Warren says, money is like manure. You spread it around, it makes things grow. But if you pile it up, it starts stinking. Actually, Jesus said it first, not quite in those words. But he said it first, and he said it a lot. Because Jesus talked more about money than any other subject except the kingdom of God. One-sixth of all the verses that record his words, one-third of all his parables are about money. Jesus was the first preacher who ever heard the criticism. All he talks about is money. And it's not because Jesus cared anything about making money. It's because Jesus cared a lot about making disciples. And listen to me. Jesus knew that money would be the chief 
battleground over which he and Satan would fight for the hearts of men. You cannot serve God and money. And so Luke, who wrote the book of Acts that we're working through, also wrote the gospel of Luke. And on almost every page, you hear Jesus just hammering home this point that if you are going to follow me, you're going to have to decide which game you're going to play. And you have this little verse in the gospel that says, because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Notice he does not say, now where your heart is, that's where you'll put your treasure. Jesus knows the power of money. And so Jesus said, where you put your treasure is where your heart is going to go. That's why you cannot divorce discipleship from stewardship. If the goal of our church is to make and grow followers of Jesus, we have to talk about money. Because here's something over 30 years of ministry has convinced me of. I know this statement will get a little pushback, but I am more convinced than ever it is true. Follow the money to see who is really following Jesus. Because your heart goes where the money goes. So if the money is not going into the kingdom, then discipleship talk is just talk. Discipleship transforms a born taker into a born again giver. That Velcro heart we were born with gets transformed into a Teflon heart. Because Jesus is teaching us a new kind of math. And so if you're a sports fan, you might remember the name Jason Brown. He was one of the best paid centers in the NFL. Had a huge house with two well-stocked bars. He called himself a believer of Jesus, but he admits money got a hold of my heart and its effect was toxic. And it was destroying me and it was destroying my marriage. And he made a critical decision that he uh, illustrated by walking into his house, taking thousands of dollars of liquor and pouring it down a drain. And he left the NFL. His agent said, you are crazy. He said, no, I'm not. And he went to North Carolina. He bought a thousand acres of land that he called First Fruits Farm. He had never farmed in his life. He didn't know a thing about farming. So what did he do? He got on YouTube and he watched videos. And he calls it First Fruits Farm because he's going to give the first fruits of everything he grows to the poor and to promote biblical literacy. And his very first harvest, he gave the whole thing away. Because disciples were once born takers. And they become born again givers. Because when you follow Jesus, generous isn't what you do. Generous is who you are. And it's the greatest miracle evidenced in the early church. So we've been looking at the early church in Acts. And we've seen many amazing things. But maybe the most amazing thing about that church is that it demonstrated just an unleashed generosity. 
So we're in chapter 4 today, and we read that all the believers were one in heart and mind. And no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them. Okay, you can't wait to the end of the sentence, can you? Okay, if God's grace is powerfully at work in you, what happens? Well, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, does that sound just a little bit familiar? Do you remember back in chapter 2 where we read... All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. So isn't it significant? The very first two records ever about the church emphasize the same thing. Unleashed generosity. And it wasn't in response to a command. It was simply the willing response of hearts that had fallen in love with Jesus and were filled with His Spirit. So when we read these two records about what the church was like in Acts, we have to ask, is that an exception or an example? Are we reading about what the church used to be? Or what the church ought to be. Well, let's do the math. What unleashes a culture of generosity? You start with community. That's the first factor. And Pentecost saw the birth of a new kind of community. We say that blood is thicker than water. But at Pentecost, there was both People washed in the blood. People birthed in the water of baptism. And this new family is born that has very important devotions. It says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to breaking of bread, which means Lord's Supper, to prayer, and to fellowship. And all four matter. Now, you expect a church to be devoted to teaching the Bible, to taking the Lord's Supper, to praying... But notice that we must be just as committed to real biblical fellowship. And it will get tested. Because theirs was. Almost immediately, people started having serious material needs. And there were good reasons for that. Remember, a lot of these new Christians had come from other countries. They were in town to visit Jerusalem for Passover and Pentecost. And that's... Why all those different languages were spoken that first Pentecost Sunday. So they only had enough money to come to Jerusalem for a few weeks. But now they're Christians and they need to get grounded in the faith. They can't leave yet. So someone's got to help pay for the bill while they stay. But more than that, the resident believers started to have real economic hardships. So maybe you work for a man. He finds out you're a Christian. And you lose your job. 
Or maybe you're a Christian couple and you have a little store and your neighbors don't shop with you anymore because they heard you say Jesus is Messiah. Or you're a widow and you're on the roll of the synagogue to receive some charity. And the rabbi finds out that you now follow Jesus and so your name gets taken off the roll. And people start to have real needs and the church rallies. I'll sell what I have, I'll sell some field. I, I got a house I can sell. And communal needs trumped personal agendas because that's what churches do. That's why, for example, on your giving envelope, have you ever noticed that line that says family care? You know what that's for? Besides your regular offering and tithe, beyond that, we want you every now and then just to give some money to go into a fund that takes care of people in our church that are having some trials. In a typical year, we help about 300 families. Uh, We give about $150,000 away. Since November, we have given six cars to people that needed transportation. And we're always needing cars that still run to help people right here in our own church. Because the Christ-centered heart always produces an other-centered life. I read a couple of years ago a story by Palmer Chinchin. He's a professor at Wheaton College, which is a Christian school in Illinois. He was taking their basketball team to Africa on a mission trip. He has a twin brother that lives in Malawi, one of the poorest countries in the world. Now, in their culture, to have no shoes is considered disgraceful. But sometimes you just can't afford shoes. So they went to the Bible college to scrimmage the team in Malawi. And the boys from America started snickering because they noticed two boys from Malawi in warm-ups only had one tennis shoe apiece. And one of the players asked Palmer's twin brother, why? And he explained, well, one of the boys can't afford tennis shoes. And his friend didn't want him to be embarrassed when the American showed up. So he gave him one of his shoes so they could each have at least one shoe. And the snickering stopped. And somewhere along the way, church became a noun. It's supposed to be a verb. Church is not a place you go to. Church is what you are. Church is a people that do things because of what God has done for them. And here's the thing. You can't do without that if you're going to be a disciple. You cannot subtract community and become a follower of Jesus. But to community, you must add another factor, accountability. You see, the first Christians didn't just give willingly, they gave visibly. It says they put the money at the apostles' feet. So they were giving in public. And the apostles distributed as they saw fit. So first notice the believers submitted to the wisdom of the church leaders. They didn't say, here's my money and this is what you have to do with it. They said, here's our money. We trust your judgment. You pray and decide who needs it. But second, please notice that the church leaders noticed who gave 
and how much? And that is so different from the don't ask, don't tell practice of stewardship common in churches today. Today, most Christians think what I give is my business. It's not yours. And so in the one area where Jesus talked the most, in the one area where Satan is going to be the most present, accountability is almost completely absent. Why? Why wouldn't we want the prayers and the counsel of our spiritual guardians in a matter that is so critical to discipleship? I've said several times from this uh, platform, I do not know what anybody in this church gives. And I don't. And this week, as I prepared and studied, I began to wonder... Is that good? If as a pastor I'm to help teach you how to follow Jesus, can I do that? When we cannot talk about the most critical factor in your growth as a disciple? Stanley Harawas is a theologian at Duke Seminary. He says, you want a revival in America, before you join a church, church leaders ought to ask four questions. Number one, who's your Lord and Savior? Only one right answer, Jesus. Number two, are you serious about following Jesus? And the only right answer is yes. Number three, and are you going to be an active, engaged member of this church? And the answer is I will. And number four, okay, so what's your average annual income? Does anyone notice how quiet it is in here? Makes us nervous, doesn't it? And somebody's thinking, well, the Bible says don't let your right hand know what your left hand's doing when it comes to giving. Go read the context. Jesus is talking about doing your piety to get applause from men. In the same context, he says pray in the closet, not out in public. Is Jesus against public prayer? Jesus prayed in public. And Jesus watched people give in public. Remember the widow and her mites? Jesus is saying, don't do things for the attention of men, but do it for the attention of God. And I believe discipleship is stunted because we talk so little about something Jesus said so much about. Let's get very practical. So we're working on our budget for our church. And so I look at some of the financial numbers. I learned that 20% of the people at West Fort Worth campus and 20% of the families at Southlake campus, there is no trackable record of their giving. And the number at this campus is 30%. 30% of the people who come to church here, there is no record that you're giving to the church. Now, maybe you are. Maybe it's in cash. I'm not trying to sound judgmental. I'm simply saying, how can we grow in discipleship if we don't learn more about that? It shouldn't surprise you, I learned. 75% 
of the giving to our church is by people over 40. Well, that makes sense to me. Jamie and I, at this stage in our life, are able to give more than we could when we just got married. But can we assume that a young person is just somehow going to figure out how to be generous if nobody ever talks to them about it? Who is mentoring you into becoming a more generous person? And who are you mentoring? And where can we get together as fellow brothers and sisters and talk about this thing that is so important to Jesus so we can follow Him better? It's interesting that the New Testament is full of very public examples of what generosity looks like. So, for example, Paul told the church in Corinth about the church in Macedonia. He says, now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what God and His kindness has done through the churches of Macedonia. They're being tested by many troubles, and they're very poor. But they're also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. For I can testify, they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. And they did it of their own free will. You see what he's doing? He's saying, do you see what it looks like to be generous? I want to bless you with that example. It's like the rooster that took the ostrich egg into the hen house and said, I just want to show you what they're doing in other places. And this is why, for example, the Holy Spirit told us about Barnabas. Barnabas, that's an example, folks. That's an example of what generosity looks like. That's an example of what happens when a Velcro heart becomes a Teflon heart. And every church needs Barnabas stories. But every church should expect Satan to try to pervert something so powerful. So there's this couple in the early church, her name was Ananias and Sapphira. And they noticed all the respect and the encouragement by Barnabas' example. And they thought, let's do that too. Let's get some of that attention for ourselves. So they sold a field. See, chapter 5 of Acts is just finishing up what chapter 4 started. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit? And have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, was it the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. See, they sold this field, they got some money. They said, you know what, let's go give some of the money, but let's tell them we gave all of the money. I mean, Barnabas got his name in the book of Acts, let's get our name in the book of Acts. Well, they did. And the problem wasn't keeping some, the problem was acting like they gave it all. This isn't a story about God killing people for not giving enough, this is a story about God Fighting for the purity of his church. Because isn't it true that nothing leashes the church like hypocrisy? Isn't it the number one complaint people who aren't church say about church people? 
And so, to our community and our accountability, we have to add authenticity. Because there is something about the power of money that can bring out the phony in us. And so, maybe you've heard the story of these two really rich old men. They're on the first tee of a posh golf resort. About to play when a young, beautiful girl walks up, kisses one of the men on the cheek and says, I'm going to go lay by the pool, then I'll meet you in the room when you're through playing. And the other old man said, who is that, your granddaughter? He said, no, that's my new wife. Your new wife? How old is she? 24. How old are you? 77. How did you get her to marry you? I lied about my age. Oh. You told her you were 57. He said, no. I told her I was 97. (laughs) And the Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. So much of our selfishness and our phoniness and our dishonesty and our pretension go back to that toxic impact money can have on our heart. Jesus has no interest in the church becoming a stage for your self-promotion. It is about His name. It's not about my name. It's not about your name. And that's why the church needs to be a place where people can be real about their struggles and their challenges and the places where they need to grow. Do you see how unleashed generosity needs all three of these factors? The reason hypocrisy flourishes is because so often I am blind to the areas of my life where I need to grow. And the reason the blindness continues is because I'm not in a community where people can speak honestly and name what I can't see. And the reason community often fails is because we get together and just talk about surface stuff and don't get down to where we really struggle. But when you get all three, people devoted to fellowship and community, being real with each other, practicing accountability, being authentic, talking, and growing together. What you get is nothing short of a miracle. And so, I want to encourage you with a Barnabas story. There are a lot of them in our church. I just picked one. And so, some of you know Rustin and Heather Gradke. And they came under conviction that their level of giving was not consistent with their standard of living. And so they took advantage of some of the teaching and courses we have in our church to become more generous. And while they were doing that, Rustin lost his job. But he was allowed to stay on to his job for a season. And during that time, he found another job to start the day after his other job finished. And so... He and Heather became convicted that their severance wasn't for them, it was for God. And they wanted to bless somebody with it. Now, Heather had been a single mom before and knew how hard that is. And so, they knew a single mom in our church named Betsy Goins. Two children and no job. She'd always wanted to take her kids to Disney World, but she couldn't afford it. 
So Rustin and Heather used that money to send Betsy and her kids to Disney World. But the story doesn't stop there. You see, Betsy has since found a really good job. And became convicted that she wanted to live with margin in her life so she could be generous. Now, she runs with a group that runs for children who cannot run because of health problems. Her girl has a heart problem. And her girl's mother is a single mom, too. And so just recently, Betsy was able to book a trip for her girl and her mom to go to Disney World. And when she and the Gracky shared their story to their group, Nobody said, well, that was wasteful. And they will never say they regretted it. You couldn't wipe the smile off their faces because money can't buy happiness. But generosity sure can bring joy. And God always does more with our kingdom investments that we could ever ask for. Or imagine. And so when generosity is unleashed, the sum always adds many more. It's interesting to me, as I studied this week, every generosity story in the book of Acts is followed by a growth statement. So, for example, in chapter 2, they worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper. They shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Or in Acts 6, we'll see later that there became in the church a problem of some of the widows not getting the help they needed. So the church organized and prayed and came up with a way to make sure that everyone was helped. And the very next verse says, so God's message continued to spread. And the number of believers greatly increased. Isn't it interesting? Every time the church practices unleashed generosity, the church grows. But the most interesting verse to me was after the Ananias and Sapphira story in chapter 5. It says, no one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless... More and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Now, those two verses sound like contradictions. Here's what he's saying. Nobody like Ananias and Sapphira wanted to join the church anymore. But so many other people said, I've never seen a community like this. And I want in. Because here's the thing. The world lives by the rules of ungrace. And in the game of ungrace, everybody eventually loses. And there's something so attractive about a community that plays a new way, and everybody wins and we are that people and you have tremendous capacity to be generous you know how I know because God is generous it's his DNA 
For God so loved the world that he gave. And when you became a Christian, God through the Holy Spirit poured his DNA into you. And you have tremendous capacity to be generous. It just needs to be unleashed. So, let's pray about that. And Father, I'm asking in Jesus' name right now that you would unleash in every heart greater passion, desire, and joy to be generous. And Father, I'm not just talking about money. Now, I am talking about money, but I'm also talking about we we want to be more generous with our thanksgiving. We want to be more generous with our words of encouragement for people. We want to be more generous about the way we pray for people. We want to be more generous with our time. And yes, our financial resources. Father, it just dawned on me this week. We're here today because somebody else was generous. Somebody else bought the first Bible we ever read. Somebody else paid for the building where we heard about Jesus. Somebody else paid the man or the woman that preached the gospel. We are here because somebody else was generous. And God, I want many, many more after us to come into the kingdom because we're generous. And so, for Jesus' sake, God, answer our heart's prayer. Amen. Everyone stand, please. We've got prayer leaders on the floor down front and also upstairs in the balcony. The Holy Spirit's doing something in your heart, then obey. Come ask for counsel. Come ask for prayer. Come bring a thanksgiving. Most of all, answer the Holy Spirit's tug to come and name Jesus as Lord and Savior while we worship Him.